Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicast. I'm Abhishek and uh, today I have with me Adam Roberts, the news editor of Economist.com, joining me from London. Over the past decade on The Economist, uh, Adam has written extensively on a wide array of topics like foreign affairs, international criminal courts, NGOs, peacekeeping, Africa, and the list goes on. He has authored a brilliant special report on migration, a sensitive and a controversial issue plaguing many countries today. His report is already being debated extensively in the blogging community. Adam, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And thanks for being almost real-time in all your responses on the emails that we exchanged. (laughs) You're very welcome. How long did it take you to shape this report, and how much did you migrate, and which are the places that you visited for this work? Well, I spent several months going back and forth to different parts of the world to gather information for the survey. In the end, you're given five weeks to do the research and to do the writing, but of course, there's always temptations to put more time into it and to try to see more people and talk to more people and see more places. The trips that I enjoyed the most were quite active and out and about, so I went to the border of Greece and Turkey and traveled with the the Greek Coast Guard and went out with them at night on a night patrol with their boats looking for uh, illegal migrants sneaking into the European Union. I went to the United States and looked at the border with Mexico and went out again on patrol with the border patrol and looked at the fence that the United States is building along the border with Mexico. And I visited Morocco and some other developing countries to try to get a feel for how important migration is to the developing part of the world. Wow. Well, I know a few of my friends who give up their jobs to do what you're doing. (laughs) I I have a great job. I'm not complaining at all. (laughs) Yep. Adam, uh, it's no secret that uh, the first reaction to immigration in the developed countries is hatred or fear. Why is Mm. that? You're right. There is a very, very strong emotion that's stirred by immigration. And I know from the responses I had to my article and to the the leader that we published with the article, there were many, many angry responses. I think in the rich world, there's a dilemma that on the one hand, we rely greatly on migrant labor. We benefit enormously from having foreign workers coming in, whether they're high-skilled or low-skilled. And yet, when the rate of migration is high, then there is some unease and there's some uncertainty about how immigrants are changing the culture of the country they live within. So I think at the moment we've got historically very high rates of migration all over the world. And I think for many people that's quite unsettling. But isn't it simple economics? For example, now here's a migrant from a poor country like Bangladesh who is willing to work his backside off in the U.S. for money, which he'll remit to his folks back home in consideration of adding some value to the U.S. economy. Now, isn't it a win-win situation for all? It is a win-win situation, but there are some downsides to migration too. We shouldn't pretend that everybody gains equally from migration. There are those in the rich countries who fear that their wages have been pushed down because of competition from foreign labor. There are those who say that it's an excuse to to weaken unions and to to break down the lot of, of poor people, basically, within those rich countries. So not everybody feels equally happy about migration. But you also mentioned in your special report that migrants help create jobs in the developed economies. These people work hard for their money and they willingly offer themselves to be transferred in any part of USA. And the employers there are encouraged to invest more in the business, which creates employment. So why is there so much hostility in spite of all of this? 
Well, I think what you touched on there is a very good point. There are those who oppose immigration who say that foreigners are stealing the jobs of the people in the rich countries. And that fallacy is a fallacy. As you point out, if there's lots of good laborers coming into your country, mm-hmm. then there's every incentive for somebody with capital to create opportunities for more jobs to be created. And yet, there are some economic issues that will affect some of those people at the margins within rich countries that maybe general wages for the lower skilled might be suppressed. So there are reasons why people are worried about migration. It's not completely irrational to be worried about it. But as you suggest, overall, the benefits are greater than the cost. Uh Adam, can you give me a couple of examples uh, that you might have uh, come across in your research? Culturally, how how does it affect a common man who is, say, from India or Pakistan or from the subcontinent who is in the U.S.? Well, let me give you an example, not from the U.S., but from Ireland. I, I met a, a very interesting man from Bangladesh who mm-hmm. had traveled to Ireland as a student, and he seemed extremely bright, extremely motivated to me. I met him when he was working in a hotel, in a, in a pub in, in Ireland, and he was studying all day. He was working all night. He was sending money back to his wife in Bangladesh. He was an entrepreneur. He had great ideas of how to improve the business in, in the hotel in Ireland, and I think he was a huge asset for that business in Ireland. Without him, the bar wouldn't have been working as well as it did. The fishing business that he helped to manage wouldn't be working. Mm -hmm. And so there's absolutely no doubt that that migrant, that young man from Bangladesh, was adding a lot of economic value to that uh, business within Ireland. He was also benefiting his family back home in in Bangladesh, Mm -hmm. and he was learning. He was learning English. He was learning business skills. He was getting experience of working in one of the richest economies in the world. But if he goes back to Bangladesh, he comes back with those skills and with that experience, and so he can benefit his country. Or if he stays in Ireland, he will be an entrepreneur, and he will be a big boost to that economy. So I think there's a clear example in that case of how migration has been a benefit to, to a great many people. Right. But then you're talking about these gregarious countries like Venezuela, where they allow the Colombians to use their social welfare system. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are some states in the U.S. who do not encourage immigrants to use their public transport as well. So uh, there seems to be a whole lot of discrimination going on out there. Now, what's your take on all of that? Well, one thing that struck me doing the research for this article is that we in the rich world forget how many migrants there are in the developing world. I think two in five migrants are found within the developing world. So, for example, there are many people from Mozambique and from Zimbabwe in South Africa. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the many migrants in South America who go to places like Venezuela. And, of course, you in India have your own migrants. You have people from Bangladesh coming into India and elsewhere. And I think each country has a different response to migrants because each country has different resources to offer. So a country like Venezuela is oil rich, has uh, you know, the means to sustain its public welfare system quite well, and the government has the wish to show that it has much in common with its neighboring countries. It wants to lead its region. In South Africa, in contrast, the government is less willing to offer welfare and other services to migrants because the welfare system would collapse. So part of the answer to your question is, what is the capability of the country that is receiving migrants? Mm-hmm. And the second part of the answer to your question is, what is the willingness of those countries to take on migrants. So how is the scenario in UK where you come from? Well, we've had a huge increase in migrants recently. The big phenomenon in the last few years has been migration within the European Union as the borders have moved eastwards and we've welcomed Poland and the Czech Republic and other Eastern European countries into the European Union. They have won the right to come and live and work in countries of Western Europe Uh and Britain was one of the most open to, to migrants. And so we have a huge population 
of Polish workers who have come over and there are parts of London, parts of the south of England where there are very large communities of Poles and other East Europeans. And so whereas 10, 20, 30 years ago, if you talked about migrants, people would think of Indians and Pakistanis and Bangladeshis coming to Britain. Now the first sort of nationality that pops into your mind is a Polish plumber or a <laughs> Polish electrician or something like that. And the mood is mixed. On the one hand, if you are a middle class and you need to hire someone to look after your children or you need someone to come and be a plumber at your house, you're very keen to welcome the migrants because they're very good workers. But on the other hand, if you're working class or unemployed, maybe you fear that the migrants are a threat to your jobs or to your standard of living. Then isn't this in stark contrast of what France has recently done where Sarkozy, the French president, had passed a new law which will allow DNA testing of immigrants' relatives who apply to come to France? Yeah. Well, there is certainly a backlash against immigration at the moment. You're seeing it all over the place. You see it in the United States, you see it in France, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. but also in countries like Denmark and Switzerland, where recently um, anti-immigrant political parties have done disturbingly well in the, in the elections. And Mr. Sarkozy campaigned on a platform of being quite anti-immigrant, demanding that immigrants either embrace France and become Frenchmen, or, or they leave. And the particular case in France, I think, on this issue is that you have many migrants coming on the basis of family reunification. And I think this is an effort to try to discourage some of that. How much of this stems from racism and color issues? There is racism, clearly, and I think if you look at countries where there is the most unease about immigration, although people don't like to say so, often they're particularly uneasy about people coming in with brown skin. There's less anxiety about Poles and about Czech Republic people because they have a similar culture, they look similar to the average Frenchman or the average Briton, and so there is an element of racism at play. On the other hand, I don't think it's a simple matter of racism. I think we've got beyond the era of Enoch Powell and the rivers of blood speeches that you heard in the 1960s in Britain when it was very much a matter of being hostile to anyone who had a dark skin. So I think we have moved on a bit from the really blunt, simple racism of, of 30 years ago, but of course it hasn't disappeared entirely. The other factor, of course, that has stoked up some tension is less a matter of skin color and more a matter of religion. Mm -hmm. There is anxiety about Islam and its place in Europe and in the West. And some of the anxiety about immigration is a proxy for anxiety about the relationship between the West and the Islamic world. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, people in the developed countries aren't getting any younger. For example, yeah. the median age in Japan is 43. And mm -hmm. The Economist has reported earlier that by 2030, people over 65 in Germany, which is the world's third largest economy, will account for almost half the adult population. So how yeah. do these economies plan to fuel the pension plans when all of them retire almost simultaneously? Yes, it's a huge problem for the rich world. I mean, you mentioned two countries there, Japan and Germany, where aging is happening incredibly fast. One answer is to make people retire later and to force them to save more money. Another possible answer is to bring more young people in from other parts of the world, even if they don't come to settle permanently, but perhaps to come in to work for three years or five years or ten years. In itself, it's not necessarily a problem that your population ages. I would argue that there's no reason for people to retire when they're 65, mm -hmm. especially when many of our jobs are to do with our brains much more than to do with our brawn. So it's perfectly possible for someone who is 65, who is 70, who is 75, to keep working. It may be not full-time, but to do some sort of work. In the long run, however, migration won't solve 
the demographic problem. It won't turn the demographic problem around. You simply can't import enough people to stop the ageing process from <laughs> continuing right. because, of course, immigrants themselves quickly adopt the habits of their host country and they age just as quickly as anybody else. So immigration isn't a cure for that problem, but it may help deal with some of the symptoms of, of the problem. And I think we'll see that happening more and more with high-skilled migrants, with those who have the very greatest skills to offer, there will be huge demand from all over the world for people to travel. So the classic example from India is the computer engineer who is lured to Silicon Valley or encouraged by Germany to go there. And I think that the highly educated will find it easier to be migrants than the than the rest of us. Well, then it leads to another question of we are living in a globalized world where globalization basically is freedom of uh, movement of goods, money, but it uh, hasn't quite happened in case of labor. Doesn't this fly against the basic premise of capitalism where skill should meet opportunity and the best man should get most of the money? Yes, I think you've hit on something there very clearly. In pure economic terms, it makes common sense. I mean, one of the huge benefits of migration we're much more aware of today is seen with remittances. You have very, very large amounts of money being sent back from rich countries to poor countries today by migrants. I think it's estimated to be between 250 and $300 billion a year is sent home by migrants. A huge amount to India, by the way. I think India has the greatest <laughs> single amount of remittances sent back every year. And that's a huge benefit to the countries that receive the money, and it's not really much of a cost to the rich countries that uh, say goodbye to the money. So there's a great means of cutting poverty that comes out of migration. And you've spent some time in the remittance offices as well, you were saying in your email. Yes. Yes, I mean, that's, that's um, if anybody wants to do a bit of tourism when they come to London, I recommend going up to places like the Seven Sisters Road in, in North London and just seeing the range of shops. You know, you walk from one shop that specializes in sending money back to Jamaica and the sound is, the music is pounding away and the, you, you see all the people from Jamaica standing around and talking to each other. Then the next shop is all about East Africa and there's lots of Somalis and Eritreans and Ugandans and the food shops and the musicians are there and uh -huh. this long street the Seven Sisters Road you have every nationality you can think of one shop after the other which is all designed for sending remittances home and it's a fascinating and understudied part of the global economy I think just these quiet ways in which we have networks of people sending money back and forth across the world because migrants really set forth to improve their own lives and crucially to improve the lives of the people they've left behind. Right. You also quote your friend, I believe, Philip Legrain, who writes in his book, Immigrants, Your Country Needs Them. He says that it's morally wrong and economically stupid to disallow immigration. I think there's something to what he says. I think it's a very simple statement, and he makes that statement because he wants to get a reaction. Right. <laughs> I think from an economic point of view, he's right. It is stupid to keep migrants out when they would benefit your economy. On the other hand, man is not only an economic being. My view is that countries are enriched by migrants, and they improve everything from the cuisine to the culture to the, to the <laughs> political scene. But it's not necessarily yeah. wrong for someone to say, you know, they want some limits on, on how much migration is going on. Since you mentioned about that, it was, I think, India or Pakistan which introduced chicken tikka to the world. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. The, the, the national dish of Britain is, you know, chicken tikka. I and mean, I think the food in Britain is notoriously bad. But it's only because of, you know, very good immigrant cuisine that we've managed to improve from 
pretty bad fish and chips to something delicious like chicken tikka masala. I personally love eating at Ethiopian restaurants or Lebanese restaurants or just being feeling I'm part of the global village when I go out in London or if you go out in New York or something. I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But just because I like that doesn't mean that everybody would like it. I can understand mm-hmm. that maybe there are people in a little village in India who would hate the idea that lots of Pakistanis might turn up and tell them that they should live in a different way. I don't think we should assume that everybody has the same attitudes towards immigration. You also mentioned very briefly about uh, migration being prompted by global warming and it seems that this will be inevitable over time where people who might drown literally would want to move to safer heavens. Now how big is this problem? Yes, I think that's a, a fascinating juncture of two big issues, migration and, and global warming. The climate is changing and there are some estimates that there will be in tens of millions of people who will be displaced over the coming years. But it's early days. We don't really know how that is going to happen. You look at the islands of the Indian Ocean that are disappearing year by year as the sea levels rise. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that if you live on a very flat bit of the Seychelles, one day you're going to have to go somewhere else. Then from your experience, do you think that developed economies will someday change their mindsets and uh, stop being, well, if I may use the word, uptight? I, I think... There will be, um, I think what we've seen, for example, within Europe is that once countries become of a similar sort of level of wealth, then you can have very easy migration between them. So in the past, Britain and France and the richer countries of Europe were very worried that lots of Greeks and Spaniards would be migrants pouring into, into the rich countries. And today, nobody thinks about it that way because Greece and Spain have become much richer than they were before. And I think as hopefully more and more developing countries become richer, the question of migration will become an easier one. You know, maybe we'll be thinking the other way around, that we in Britain would really like to migrate to India. We really want to move to that booming economy that you have. And you'll be the one saying, no, no, we can't take any more Britons. We've just got far too many Britons already. You need to travel in our local trains in Bombay, and it's really crowded. (laughs) Well, Adam, thanks a lot for sparing your time, and this was indeed a privilege for me. Well, thank you very much, too. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And Adam, you also have a book to your credit called The Wonga Koo. Can you tell me That's something right. more about it? Yes, absolutely. This is the story of some British mercenaries who attempted to overthrow the government of an oil-rich country in Africa mm-hmm. three or four years ago. And the mercenaries were stopped and arrested in Zimbabwe. And the leader of the, of the gang, a fellow called Simon Mann, was thrown in prison. And another hundred people were thrown in prison with him. And this is the story called the Wonga coup. And it is the story of their attempts to overthrow the government in Africa and their complete failure. And it is a, a truly remarkable, true life story. <laughs> Sounds like a thriller of a movie if, it, if it's made. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I googled up a bit and I found out that there is a film being made in the same name. Has That's it got right. something to do with, with your book? It has, yes. Yeah. There is a plan to make a, a movie of the book. If any of your listeners know the book by Frederick Forsyth called The Dogs of War, the real-life coup attempt was to some extent based on that book. The mercenaries had read the book and they thought that they might be able to do something similar in real life. And they failed. And then I wrote my book, uh-huh. pointing out not only that they'd done this, but the great similarities with the, the book, The Dogs of War. And just as art imitates life and then life uh-huh. imitates art, here we have art yet again imitating <laughs> life. And we're hopefully going to have a movie of the Wonga Coup.
Wow. When is it slated to be released? I don't know all the details, but okay. I believe it is later this year or perhaps early in 2009. But Miramax is making the movie. And, of course, the story continues. The real story continues because just this week, Simon Mann, the leader of the mercenaries, was taken to the African country mm-hmm. where he was plotting his coup, allegedly. Mm-hmm. And he will be put on trial. And I think in the next few months, you're going to see a lot more about the Wonga coup as his trial goes ahead. I wish you all the best on the book and the film success as well. Thank you very much and I wish you success with your broadcast. Thanks a lot, Bye-bye. Bye-bye.